Well, the last six months have been uh, interesting. They've been frustrating, challenging. It was about six months ago that the Prime Minister of Canada called on all citizens from Canada to come home, no matter where they were in the world, because he was going to lock down the country. And I was in Dubai at the time, so my family and I, we got two planes to come home. I, I flew alone about 14 hours later than Angie and Selah. There was no guarantee that I would actually get out of the country. Um, but uh, we, both, we all got home, and so, so started the lockdown. And we were locked down together for, it was supposed to be 14 days, turned into 30 days, turned into, I don't know, maybe 45 days, I'm not sure, can't remember. But, you know, we couldn't gather, right, for three months as a church. So we did our best, and we gathered online, and I preached from that little corner of the sanctuary, and we tried to gather everybody virtually as much as we could, and we set up shepherding groups, and, and we did everything we could for three months to be able to keep the church together. But now, we've been gathering in the same place for longer than we weren't permitted to gather. I just want I think that's a really important statistic before we start to work through how are we supposed to respond to government regulations. Uh, I think it's important to know that we've been permitted by the government to gather, and we've, we've been gathering now for more than three months. Uh, we've gone through the entire book of Philippians together. I've, uh, I'm well into my series on the glory of the gospel, but I'm going to take a break from that today to have a little family chat uh, with you all about how we as a church are going to respond moving forward to the reality of government regulations because of COVID-19. I think it's fair to say that we all are suffering from one degree or another uh, of COVID fatigue. I am, probably you are. Uh, we, we all, none of us want this reality. None of us want to have to live our lives this way. However, Let's define reality, and that's what I want to do before we look at this morning's scripture passage. Regardless of what any one of us thinks medically about the severity or the lack of severity of COVID-19, COVID-19 is a global reality that every person on earth is living through. You cannot avoid it. You can't fly somewhere on this planet to get away from it. Therefore, it's simply not fair to say that there is no pandemic. Now, I know that when some of us might say that, or we've probably heard others say that, what, what the intent is probably there's no real medical reason to call this a pandemic. And I'm not going to evaluate whether that's true or not true. Everyone has their own opinion about the medical severity of it. However, it's just simply not fair to say that there's no pandemic, because at the very least, I'm saying at the very least, not at the, at, not at the most, but at the very least, it's a political reality that has gripped the globe, and so you can't just opt out. This is the world we're living in right now. Governments all around the world are enacting policies and procedures based on a number of things. Uh, there are global pressures. If you're a world leader, you can't just go rogue. There's pressure that's exerted on you from other countries and other world leaders. There are local concerns. Every government is charged to oversee a particular territory with a particular population. 
and the government is tasked to take care of those people in that place. And then let's also admit and acknowledge that there are personal and political agendas that are not always on the up and up. Politicians do not always act altruistically, neither do dictators. So we happen to live in a democracy, but there are some people who don't even have that luxury. Now just as governments all over the world are having to make decisions, so also local churches all around the world, not just in this city or this province or this country or this continent, local churches all over the world are having to figure out how they will react to government policies and procedures. Now, how, how do local churches make these kinds of decisions? Well, first of all, you have to know what the government policy is. So government policy impacts the life of the local church. There's no way around that. Secondly, especially if you're in North America, we like to think about our constitutional rights. And just by way of reminder, we do not have American constitutional rights in Canada. But we do have a charter of rights and freedoms, and it's not wrong to, as a citizen of the country, remind yourself and your government of what your charter rights are. But I think it's really important that we remember that we don't have American constitutional rights, because I see that. Not, not from everyone, but I see it bubbling up north. Third way that local churches make decisions is uh, through the leader's assessment of what is going on. That is, every local church has a governance structure. Our governance structure puts elders in a position of authority, and so this local church is going to make, sort of make decisions based on the assessment of the elders. It falls to the elders. We are charged by God to make decisions for the church on how we are going to interact with the government regulations. But we do not lead in a vacuum. The fourth... Uh, part of what impacts the local church in making decisions is congregational pressure. We are very aware of what you are thinking and feeling. Uh, that's, our, that's our job. That's what it means to be a shepherd, is to know the sheep, to have our ears wide open, to be aware of, of what's going on. So there's always congregational pressure. Uh, and in, thing, in a time like this, there's congregational pressure to this extreme and that extreme and everything in the middle which makes it difficult to elder. And then finally, and most importantly, this is really the thesis of this morning, local churches around the world need to choose how to react to government policies and pre procedures uh, by interpreting the Bible. The Bible. That, that's where we should really be going to figure out how we're going to respond. Now, as I said, Shore has the full spectrum of opinions about COVID-19 by far the largest group among us is following the lead of the elders and obeying government regulations without much resistance or questioning. And we're so thankful for that. That's the largest group. But we have three more groups. Uh, we have uh, those who are exercising extra caution. Uh, some who have not yet come back to church because they're still wanting to exercise the maximum amount of caution to stay healthy, either for themselves, for their families, or for their workplace. There are those who believe that the church and the government are overreacting, and therefore some, some are coming, even though they hold that position, others are staying away, because they feel that all of these procedures and protocols and regulations is a massive overreaction. And then we have a fourth group, those who have come to believe in different conspiracy theories, that this is actually 
something that is intentionally trying to uh, take control of the world or what have you. We have all those groups in this church. Now, within each of these four groups, there are variances of opinion. So uh, we have the full spectrum where you could plot these four groups, but then within each group, you have a variety of opinions as well. Not everyone is the same. There's no uniformity, even group by group, so that you have as many opinions and positions on the spectrum as you have members of this church, which makes it a difficult reality in which to elder, right? Because our goal is to keep everybody together, to, to, to keep the church united. Not uniformed, but united. Um, now, the existence of these four different groups within our church has created fault lines of potential division that can be easily exploited by the devil. And that's why we're talking about this. I'm so glad to say that we don't yet have any open division in the church. And, and so you're to be commended for that. And, and we're very thankful for that. This is not a major problem in our church right now, but we see cracks. We see little, little um, opportunities for the devil to create dissension and division. We're beginning to hear of conversations where people are beginning to pull apart from other people in the church. So, so the goal for addressing this now is not to be reactive that once it becomes a major problem and we have a crisis of church unity, then we address it. What we're hoping as elders is that we're going to address this now before it becomes a major problem. It, it, we're right on the tipping point right now. And I know this as a shepherd. I've been shepherding churches for 16 years. And I just, it's sort of a, a, a sixth sense. I just have this sense that we're at the tipping point as a church. So far, so good. Leave it another couple weeks, and we're, we're doing a whole other thing. So, so that's why we're bringing this to you now. I want to underscore, though, that although we don't have any major problems with church unity yet, this is serious. And the tone this morning is going to be, you know, on the serious side. It's going to be on the firm side. Because we cannot afford to just avoid this, ignore it, or treat it lightly. Because this is exactly the kind of situation, this is exactly the kind of circumstances that the enemy looks for, and he will do everything that he can with all the powers at his disposal to widen the gap to, to accentuate the dissension and the division among us. And if we're not vigilant, if we don't get it on the front end, then we will find ourselves in a place that we don't want to be. So this is very serious. It's, it's worthy of your engagement this morning, attentiveness. It's worthy of your prayer every day for the, for the elders of this church and for the members of this church. Um, and it's, it's worthy of your personal self-assessment. Where do you fall? on what we're talking about. The task, as I said, of the elders given to us by Jesus Christ is to shepherd you into one flock and as one flock into the shelter of biblical wisdom. The only authoritative source for deciding how we as a church should react and respond to government policies and procedures is the Bible. So remember I gave you those five 
ways in which churches are making decisions. Really, the only authoritative source for us is the Bible. It really doesn't matter. You shouldn't give a rip about what I think about it personally. How severe I think it is or don't think it is doesn't really even impact what we as a church need to do. And if it doesn't matter what the pastor thinks from a medical point of view, it doesn't matter what any member thinks from a medical point of view. Um, The Bible and God through his word has not called the church to be the world's epidemiologists. That's not the call of, of the pastor, of the elders, or the Christian. We are not tasked by God to figure out how serious, uh, from a medical point of view, COVID-19 is. So, the source for deciding how we should respond is not personal opinion about government policies. Feel free to agree or disagree strongly or softly with the government. Now, what you do with those opinions is another matter. But this is not about whether we agree or disagree with the government assessment. This is not about constitutional rights. Uh, We do not go to the Bible and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms equally. As citizens of this country, we have the right to remind the citizenry and our government of our rights, but that pales in comparison uh, to our responsibility to fulfill the Scriptures. Third, this is We don't make decisions based on any leader's personal assessment, as I said. Fourth, uh, we cannot make this decision based on congregational pressure. We don't have that luxury to take a poll to see what, what we think we should do based on how we feel. The only source, authoritatively speaking, for deciding how we should react and respond to government policies and procedures is the Bible. The Bible alone. Now, Unfortunately, there is no chapter and verse that tells you what to do during the COVID-19 pandemic. There's no verse that talks about wearing masks. However, this does not mean that the Bible has nothing to say to us in such a time as this. In fact, there's much to say. So what I want to do, I want to root us in Philippians 4. uh, Because in Philippians chapter 4, find your place there, we... We are given a situation in the Philippian church where two women do not agree about something, and it's causing division in the church. That's very similar to what we find ourselves in now. We have members in the church who do not agree about the right way forward. What is the path forward during this season of life? And so it's very instructive for us. I want to give you not just content for how we are responding to COVID-19 and government regulations pertaining to that, but I want to give you also a process so that down the road, if there's division in the church, you have a process to follow to bring unity in the place of division. So would you open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4? I'm going to read to you from verses 2 through 9. Would you please stand? This is the word of God. Philippians 4, verses 2 through 9. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the fellow workers 
whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. The God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. God, I... Thank you for this passage that is so instructive and helpful. And Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church navigate uh, the realities of government regulation uh, at this time of COVID-19. Lord, help us to be wise and biblical. I pray that you would strengthen the elders uh, for this task, and I pray that you would unite our church. Help us to draw close to your word so that we could be built up together in mutual love so that the whole world will know that we're your disciples. And as we love you and are seen to love you and are identified as your disciples, glorify yourself and add to our number. Help me to preach this morning and help us to receive the preaching of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This passage really needs to be understood altogether. These are not three different sections uh, or different abstract exhortations. I want to just draw your attention uh, to verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is directly related to verses 2 and 3. Uh, Syntyche and Euodia are not enjoying the peace of God in their relationship with one another. Uh, the Philippian church is not enjoying the peace of God because of the quarrel of these two ladies. And so Paul says, do these things, and God will restore his peace among you. And then I want to direct your attention down to verse 9. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. In other words, uh, if you belong to Christ, then you belong to God, and God is a God of peace. And if you practice the gospel, if you practice biblical exhortation, uh, then you will enjoy his peace. Division is not from God. Division is from the devil. Now, we're not talking about unity at all costs. We're talking about unity under the authority of Scripture. So you can have a church divided, but if you have a church divided, the only time that that is merited is if one group is following God by obeying the Scriptures and the other is not. So what Paul is trying to do for the Philippian church is he's trying to direct everybody back to what they have in common in Christ, direct everyone back to the authority of Scripture. So this passage can be divided into three sections. You have the situation in verses 2 and 3, this division in the Philippian church. Then you have solution part 1 in verses 4 through 7. And you have solution part 2 in verses 8 and 9. 
So we've already identified the situation in verses 2 and 3. There's a disagreement between two ladies who love Paul, they love the Lord Jesus, they love the church, they're just not agreeing about something. And so Paul calls on true companion, whoever this anonymous person is, to help these two ladies to, to get together. And, and by context of verses 4 through 9, it looks like this true companion is supposed to bring the whole church around these ladies. And the whole church is supposed to help these, these two women to, to reconcile. And how? Well, that's where we get the solution, part one. So solution part one is verses four and seven. Part one of the solution is to worship together. Look at verse four. Rejoice in the Lord. Always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Now that always is really interesting. Even when we're having a disagreement? Yes. Even when you don't agree about the way forward, get together and worship. Really hard to stay divided when you're worshiping God together. Why? Because you're refocused. The, the, the major things become major again and the minor things become minor and, and you're reminded of all that you have in common as you worship one God through one Lord, Jesus Christ, by one Spirit. And, and that act of worship is a unifying exercise. So the first thing is get together and worship. Before you do anything else, just worship God together. Remind yourselves that you're not opposed to one another. You're on the same team. You're going the same direction, which is why it's important that we gather together. I'll probably exhort people later, but for those of you watching from home, if you've not yet come back, it's been three months. So whether you're being cautious or you're not coming back because you feel that having to wear a mask is is uh, unfair and unnecessary, whatever the reason, we need to be together worshiping as long as we're able. Uh, and I think we've, we've put in place protocols that have made it safe for people to come back. And for those of you who are staying away because uh, you're just not willing to, to come under these circumstances, I hope that today's message will encourage both groups to consider coming back. We need to worship together. Uh, secondly, what Paul says in the solution here is be reasonable with one another. After you've worshipped together, then talk it out. And it's so much easier to be reasonable with one another after you've worshipped together. Really hard to worship God and then go back to fighting. It's possible, but it's not as easy. Be reasonable. We need to talk it out dispassionately. Reasonably. Not, be, not with emotional charge. These things can become so emotional so quick so passionate and then we're not hearing each other and we're, we're going right by one another we live in polarizing times and therefore we need to protect ourselves from the polarization that is rampant in our culture in our society i would recommend you stay off social media in social media you will you, you will find yourself in an echo chamber and there, you'll find only two voices you'll find the voice of those you agree with and you'll find the voice of those people that you disagree with vehemently and you will be encouraged your fire will be stoked by the people you agree with and you will make foolish decisions behind a keyboard and a screen by the people that you disagree with and at the end of the day Nobody is being reasonable, or very few. Uh, there, there are few reasonable voices, 
and even those who are being reasonable are being drowned out by the unreasonable voices, and nobody's changing their mind anyway. I have yet to hear anyone say, you know, I was going this way, and then I read this Facebook post, and I've totally changed my mind. It just doesn't happen. So I would, I would commend to you, like, limit your social media intake. Restrict also your news and media input. Uh, the way the news works, if you didn't know this, is it's divided now into camps, and each camp has an agenda. So turn off CNN, turn off Fox News, turn off the CBC, turn off that podcast that you're listening to if you're finding that it's all polarization, if it's strident positioning, trying to get you to be enraged about something, turn it off. Be very careful of the media diet that you are ingesting. And in place of social media and all of these different news and podcast outlets, increase your biblical input. Listen to more sermons. Read more of the Bible. Talk more to Christians about biblical and spiritual things. So be reasonable with one another. We can help ourselves out by the decisions we make. Third, pray for resolution. You ever find you're getting yourself into one of those conversations where you know that the person doesn't agree with you and all of a sudden your anxiety is starting to ratchet up and you can feel your blood pressure rising and you know if you're not careful you're just going to explode verbally. Paul, Paul knows that that's a part of what's going on with Euodia uh, uh, and Syntyche. After saying, be reasonable, he says, don't forget that the Lord is at hand. Whatever you do, whatever you say, remember, Jesus is standing right beside you. Not really, he's in heaven, but his Holy Spirit is here. Jesus is in our midst by the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Lord is at hand. Be careful and don't be anxious. So what happens when, or what should you do when you're in that conversation with a Christian? and you find your blood pressure is rising. Paul says, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. If you find yourself in that conversation, say, can we just stop for a moment? My blood pressure is rising because of this conversation. Could we pray? Can you imagine if we did that? That would change everything. And then the promise, if you do these things, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God, if we do those things, will restore and preserve our peace with one another. Solution part two. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time in solution part two. Basically, all of this is a framework for getting to really the good stuff, the stuff we really need to talk about this morning. Uh, if, in verses eight and nine, we're told to think about certain things. So the solution, when you find disagreement in the church, is you need to redirect everyone's thoughts to one focus. If we want peace and unity in the church, we must think carefully and clearly Finally, brothers, so this is, this is directed to the church, the church to help uh, Euodia and Syntyche to resolve their differences so that the divisions in the church will be overcome. If all of that's not working, worshiping together, talking it out reasonably, and praying together, think about whatever is true. 
Think about whatever is honorable. Think about whatever is just. Think about whatever is pure. Think about whatever is lovely. Think about whatever is commendable. Think about something that is excellent. Think about anything that's worthy of praise. Yes, think about these things. And then what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. So verse 9 is a little extra help. Where do we go to identify these things? Well, the Scriptures as delivered by Paul. What you've learned from me, the Word of God. What you've received from me, the Word of God. What you've heard from me, the Word of God. What you've seen in me, the Word of God. Practice these things. And then the God of peace will be with you. See, if every one of us is trying to implement the Bible with our lives, we'll be united. We won't always agree, but we'll be united. We might not be uniform in that everyone thinks exactly the same about every detail of every issue, but we'll be united in the things that matter. So that's what we're going to do for the rest of our time this morning. We're going to think about these things. And this is how we're going to do it. The elders have spent much time, much prayer, much discussion uh, in this past week trying to figure out what are the things that we want the church to think about in order to preserve and maintain our unity as a church. And we came up with nine statements that we believe are absolutely clear from Scripture. Uh, Among other things, the Bible, in our opinion, is absolutely clear with regard to the following matters. And when we say absolutely clear, we mean absolutely clear. So we're not giving you some things that might be true. Uh, What I'm going to be presenting to you, there's no room for debate on these nine statements. That's, That's a pretty firmly stated introduction. There's no debate. What, what I'm going to present to you are non-negotiable, non-debatable truths from Scripture that we are appealing to you, South Shore Bible Church, to think on these things and having thought on these things, allow us to unite ourselves around them and implement them. And we believe and we know and we trust that if we do these things then the God of peace will be with us. So let's get to it. These are the statements. Um, We will be sending out a document this afternoon with all of this information, with all of these statements and all of the Scripture written in long form. It's a 13-page document because we've given you all of the Scripture in long form so you don't have to look it up. And so you don't need to take notes right now. You can just sort of take it all in because I'm going to give you the notes this afternoon. I don't have time to go through all of the Scripture to substantiate these nine statements, but I'm going to give you a sample of the Scripture that gives you a flavor from the Bible that nails these statements as non-negotiable, non-debatable truths. And then in the document, you'll get it all fully expressed. So statement number one, God is sovereign over all and He institutes all governing authorities. When we say God is sovereign over all, what we mean is He is the supreme power in all of reality. In the universe, yes, but beyond the universe, in all of reality. There's nothing that exists in heaven or on earth or in the universe or on the other side of the universe. Uh, There is nothing that has greater power and authority than God. He's supreme, sovereign over all. 
He has created all things, and he has instituted every lesser power. There is no power that exercises any authority whatsoever outside of God's permission to exist. We see this in John 19, 8 to 11, Jesus' discussion with Pilate. You'd have no authority over me if it was not given to you from above. We see this also very clearly in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read to you from the first two verses of Romans 13. These two verses alone are enough, and there's, there's no wiggle room in these verses to substantiate this statement. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now here's the part relevant to this point. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. That's clear. There's one all-powerful God who has established authorities, among those authorities, governments over human people, and there is no human government that exists apart from God's instituting it. That's really important because what we want to show is the divine right for every government to exist. Even the ones we don't like. Statement number two. God calls Christians to submit to him by submitting to governing authorities. This is an issue of submitting to God. Uh, Christians, not all of us, but there is this myth out there. We've created this bubble that's not biblical. And within this bubble, we can submit to God without submitting to the authorities that God has placed over us. Biblically speaking, that bubble does not exist. That's a figment of the devil's imagination. And so we want to pop that right now. That is not a biblical reality. We must submit to God, and we cannot say that we are submitting to God if we are not submitting to the authorities that He has placed over us. We see this in Romans 13, 1 to 7. We see this in Titus 3, 1 to 2. And we see this in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 17. The 1 Peter reference is really helpful because if you read all of 1 Peter, uh, it's in this section that goes from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 4. And in that section, Peter is calling on Christians of every walk of life to submit to the authority that God has placed over them. And he starts with Christians, as, as subjects to Rome, you have to submit to the governor or to the Caesar and to the governors. And then he goes on and he says, slaves. You have to submit to your masters and wives. You need to submit to your husbands. 
and I'm not sure in First Peter, but definitely elsewhere, children submit to your parents. That God has created the world with authority structures. And what's really hard but good about First Peter is the, the broader context is submit to these authorities even when they're not behaving properly. So even when the government is, is not behaving the way that they ought to be behaving, submit to them anyway. Even when your husband is not acting like a Christian, maybe because he's not a Christian, submit to him anyway. That's what makes 1 Peter a really difficult book because it's not submit until you don't agree. 1 Peter makes it absolutely clear, submit even when it's hard. Even when you don't agree, even when it comes with suffering. And in 1 Peter, he goes on and he says, and if you suffer... Because 1 Peter talks a lot about suffering. Let it be that your suffering is the cause of good behavior, submissive posture, and not because you're doing something evil. So we read from 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That includes the government, but goes beyond that. Um, Whether it's Caesar or the governor, whether it's the prime minister or the premier or the mayor, for the Lord's sake. That's the point I just made. Uh, If you want to say that you're submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ, you must submit to the governing authorities. Statement number three. God calls Christians to pray for their leaders. What do we do when our government is making bad decisions? What do we do when the government is making our life inconvenient? What do we do when we don't agree with the governments that God has instituted and put over us? Our impulse, because we come from Western liberal democratic tradition out of Britain, right? And because we're so close and we get so much media from the United States, we live in these political systems and society, societal cultures that say that when things aren't going your way, when you don't agree, resist. When, when, when things are inconvenient, when it feels like your rights are being trampled on, don't submit. Fight. Fight for your rights. That's that's the water that we're swimming in, which makes it so hard to see that the biblical impulse is the exact opposite. Don't fight, pray. And and just before I read to you from 1 Timothy 2, Nero was the Caesar when Paul wrote Romans 13 and when um, Peter wrote 1 Peter 2 and when Paul wrote 1 Timothy 2. And Nero was burying Christians up to their waist and then pouring pitch and tar over their upper body. And they can't get out because their legs are buried under the ground. And some of them had their hands staked to the ground or what have you, but they couldn't move. And then he was lighting them on fire to illuminate his garden parties. That's what a Roman candle is. He had Peter crucified upside down. He had Paul decapitated. He was a madman. 
a total lunatic doing wicked, evil things. That's the context in which we're given these biblical exhortations. So in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 3, Paul writes, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Pray for Nero, says Paul. That's why he says this is good. This is good. This is pleasing to God because if you're a Christian in Ephesus and you read that because this was a letter written to the Ephesian church or the pastor of the Ephesian church, you want me to pray for Nero? Yes, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. And he says our goal is that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, that Nero would stop burning us, stop crucifying us, Stop decapitating us. Now, how does mask wearing compare? Like, let's keep it in perspective. I say mask wearing, and I know that mask wearing goes far beyond, or the issues are far more than mask wearing, but mask wearing has kind of become like circumcision, hasn't it? You're like, what? Whoa, how do you get to circumcision all of a sudden? (laughs) Well, circumcision is just that symbol that represents more than itself. It represents the law. So mask wearing has become the symbol of government regulations in this COVID-19 season of life. But let's keep it in perspective. What was exhorted by God through the Apostle Paul to the church in the Roman Empire while Nero was in charge? I would say, to keep with the spirit of this, this is not, this is not non-negotiable. <laughs> Double negative. So you don't have to do this. This is not, I can't bind your conscience to this with the scriptures. The way I am trying to bind your conscience on these statements. But why not, rather than resisting the government, why not, in addition to praying for them, write them a letter or an email saying, thank you for, for governing at this time. It must not be easy. And I just want you to know that, that we, that I and we in our church, we are praying for you. And we're praying for God's wisdom. We're praying for God's endurance. We're praying that you'll be able to stand up under scrutiny and criticism. And, and we want to thank you for trying to keep us safe. Now, compare that response with the response that some Christians are opting for, where it's a fight for our rights kind of response. If you're in a position of authority in Barrie or in Simcoe County or in Ontario or in Canada, which email do you want to get? Which is going to impact your governance more? Let me tell you, the protests are going to have a limited effect, but to know that the church in Canada is praying for our leaders, that w- this is a moment for us, and I don't want us to miss it. Build goodwill so that we may lead quiet and peaceful lives, godly and dignified in every way. Statement number four. Elders of the local church are to exercise oversight with authority, but are not to be domineering. I hesitate 
to even have to talk about this. It seems self-serving and self-indulgent. I think in some ways I have some freedom here because I have three weeks left before this is no longer my responsibility. But there are going to be men in this church who have to continue to provide oversight to this church. So for their sake, let me say, uh, deliver this biblical truth to you with much firmness and for your own sake too. God has charged elders to lead to shepherd, to provide oversight. The church is not a democracy, it's a family. And, and, and the elders are charged with headship over this family. And, and so just as we need to pray for our governing authorities, we need to pray for our elders. It's not an easy position to be in. And when you remember the, the groups that are not totally unruly yet, but are beginning to drift apart from one another at South Shore, eldering has now become more difficult But I want to remind you that God has established the elders of this local church to lead you. So please make it easy and follow. We see this in 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 to 2, about how the elders are, are not to rebuke older men severely, but to lead them as you would lead your father, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, younger men as brothers. There's still leadership in rebuking that happens, but do it carefully, not in a domineering way. We see instructions uh, to this end in 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. We see uh, this in Titus 2, 15. And we see evidence of this in 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4. I want to read two passages to make the point that the elders of the local church are to exercise oversight with authority but are not to be domineering with two passages because one for the authority and one for the non-domineering aspect. So in Titus 2.15, Paul's writing to Titus. He's saying, set up the church, establish elders, uh, put this into place, and then for Titus, and then this authority would transfer to the elders. He writes in Titus 2.15, declare these things, the things that Paul has instructed, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Did you know that that's, that's the level of authority that God has given to the elders of the local church? Now, that needs to be balanced with other scriptures. The way in which Elders exhort and rebuke with all authority, not permitting anyone to disregard the authority of the office of elder needs to be done very carefully. We are not to be tyrants. We are to be shepherds who come as fathers to a family or shepherds to a flock. And we see this in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Let me apply this to our current situation. Division is from the devil. It's not from God. 
I know we all want to be Martin Luther, and it's possible to stand against the crowd if you're absolutely right. But division itself is not God's goal for the local church. Therefore, when we see things ripping the church apart, it is just certain that the devil is at work. There's spiritual warfare at play. And so it's up to the Lord's servant to address this division, not being quarrelsome. We need to do it with kindness to everyone, but we need to teach. We need to lay out the scriptures, which is what we're trying to do this morning. I'm trying to lay out the scriptures to put us all on the same page, to do this patiently, and to correct opponents with gentleness. Gentleness is a word that means only as much force as is necessary. So a doctor needs to set someone's broken arm gently. This sometimes causes pain because you have to use as much force as necessary to set the bone. But elders are not to take pleasure in having to correct opponents or to exercise authority. It it should be something that's done reluctantly, carefully, and lovingly. Number five. Statement five. God calls Christians to submit to the elders of the local church. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 makes this point. So does 1 Peter 5. Verse five. If you read 1 Peter 5, 5, you'll see you who are younger must submit to those who are to submit to the elders. Younger there is a word that means new. It doesn't mean younger chronologically in age. It just means uh, those who are newer in the faith, not as mature in the faith. Those who are called to, to submit to the, the mature leaders of the local church. We also see uh, this exhortation in Hebrews 13.7 and Hebrews 13.17. I'm going to read to you from Hebrews 13.17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no benefit to you. This is really clear, isn't it? Obey your leaders, context, local church, therefore your elders, and submit to them. Again, if your elders are being abusive, if your elders are being domineering, if your elders are in biblical error, then don't submit to them. This presumes good eldership, this verse. But it would have to be a pretty serious violation of biblical truth for you not to fulfill Hebrews 13, 17. Now, why would you do that? Why would you submit to your elders It's not to make your elders rich. It's not to make your elders powerful. It's not to make your elders um, uh, more important. It's because your elders are keeping watch over your souls. There's something in this for you. You obey your elders because what your elders are thinking about is what is good for for you. And there's a check on this. There's There's a check and a balance to this. Your elders will have to give an account for how they do. Uh, we are responsible to the Lord Jesus Christ. We will give an account to him. It will go to our eternal account how we shepherd you. If we do a good job, that will 
go into our account positively. If we do a bad job, it'll go negatively. We will give an account for how we do. So let us do this with joy. Please make this easy for us because that would be of most benefit to you. Then we, if, if we are enjoying our responsibility, it'll be better for you. Statement six, God calls Christians to surrender individual rights in love. just want to pause there before I get to the end of this statement. As I already mentioned, in North America especially, in the United States of America even more so, uh, the idea that we should fight for our rights, individualism and our personal rights have become the most important thing in our culture. We're individualistically minded that we are supposed to fight for our rights at all costs. That's my right. Don't take it from me. That's really an American invention, right? The whole ethos of the, United, uh, the American project is um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And you, you achieve these things by fighting for your rights with arms if necessary. That is, with guns. That's America. Now, that I, I, why do I keep bringing up America? Because the United States is increasingly influencing the way we think. Never mind the fact that in Canada, the ethos of the Canadian project is... Um, is uh, order and good government. It's not as exciting as the American ethos, but that's what it is constitutionally, order and good government. But this idea of individualistically fighting for our rights has become just our birthright, even now in Canada. But that's completely contrary to the Bible. Everywhere I go in the New Testament, we are being exhorted to lay aside our rights in love for the sake of others. I'm going to give you some passages to look at, but I could, I could have just as easily put under here the New Testament. Like, just read the New Testament. Find me any place in the New Testament. This is maybe a homework project for you. Read through the whole Testament, if for this, only this reason, uh, getting you to read the New Testament, which is a good thing. Um, find me one place where we're told, fight for your rights. You won't, I don't think you'll find it. It's very clear in Romans 12, 10, in Romans 14, 1 through 15, 7, in 1 Corinthians 8, 8 through 13, in Philippians 2, 1 to 11, that we are not to fight for our rights. We are to set aside our rights in love for the sake of others. I want to read to you from Philippians 2, verses 3 to 5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then that beautiful hymn that goes on to say, uh, God is not asking us to do anything that Jesus himself hasn't done. Uh, Jesus set aside his rights as God and creator of the universe to come and be one of us. And then he set aside his rights further uh, to die on a cross so that we could be saved. If Jesus 
exercise his rights, he never would have allowed sinners to crucify him to death. But he set aside those rights. Why? In love for the sake of others so that we could be saved. That is what the Bible calls us to. Statement number seven. God calls Christians to surrender their individual rights in love for the sake of maintaining unity in the bond of peace. Unity is a big deal to God all throughout the Bible as well, Old and New Testaments, but it's very clear in Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, and in Colossians 3, 12 to 15. I want to read for you Colossians 3, 12 to 15. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. There it is, perfect harmony, unity, exercise in harmony. I'll say, say more about that in a moment. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Harmony. First of all, harmony requires different voices, different tones and tunes. And it's the differentiation of voices that produces harmony. So we're not looking for uniformity. We're looking for unity, which is a harmony. And we're told that we are called to one body. That's the unity that we're looking for. Again, not uniformity. A hand is not a foot, is not an eye, is not an ear, is not a tongue. Uh, so we have different members doing different things, perhaps thinking different things or having slightly different opinions. What we want is a harmony, a unity of a body to come together. And I love the last part is be thankful. You might say, like, after you, uh, the Colossians read this, you want me to be compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient. You want me to bear with one another, even though they're super annoying, and you want uh, me to forgive those who are complaining against me, and you want me to be thankful about this. Yes, why? It's because when we do these things, though they're not easy, they're not natural to us, they don't, they, they're not possible without a new heart, without the indwelling spirit, without the grace of God. But be thankful that God has empowered us to do this and to be this so that we can have that unity. You see, the church is the place where natural enemies come together as brothers and sisters. It's where zealots and tax collectors come together. If a zealot and a tax collector could come together as disciples of Christ and each of them dying for the gospel, can we not preserve the bonds of peace and unity through this season of COVID-19? Statement eight. And perhaps this is the statement you've all been waiting for. No governing authority, no human institution, no council of elders has the authority or the right to require Christians to disobey God. 
So this is the, the, the big notwithstanding clause of everything we've said so far to this point. Uh, what we're not saying is submit to the government even if they uh, command you to sin. We're not saying submit to the government even if they're asking you to break scripture. Submit to the, the elders even if they're bad elders that are totally off and not biblically rooted. So you do have to assess, are the elders being faithful to scripture? And I hope to prove that with these statements this morning, but every week and every day, the elders have to gain your confidence that we are being get guided and directed by the Holy Spirit and His assistance to us in interpreting the Word of God. Uh, I have no authority in myself as your pastor. It's not as if in three weeks my authority is removed from me. I have no authority now. The elders have no authority over you apart from our diligent exercise of the office which faithfully interprets and implements Scripture. That's the source of the authority. It's, it's not in my person, it's in my office, properly executed. So we see this clearly in Acts 4, verses 13 to 22, in Acts 5, 27 to 32. Let me just read to you from Acts 5, 29. Context is that uh, the disciples are out there preaching the gospel on the Temple Mount, and they get thrown in jail, and then they get scourged, and they get released, and they said, we're going to let you go because, you know, it's getting kind of hot in here. The, there's a lot of people that love you. We don't want to fight with the masses right now, but please stop preaching this gospel of Jesus Christ. And say, well, I'm sorry, but we have to. We cannot submit to you in this because Jesus Christ, who was crucified and raised from the dead, has charged us to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching everyone to obey everything that he has commanded, and we're doing this in his power. So, so there is nothing that a government or a council of elders can do to nullify the commission of Christ to his church or any other command in Scripture. And so, in Acts 5.29, Peter and the apostles answered the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, we must obey God rather than men. And what I want to assure the church is the elders are fully prepared to exercise civil disobedience against our governing authorities if our governing authorities ask our church to break Scripture. But so far, they have not asked us to break Scripture. And we are not, as I've already said, given the authority to evaluate whether or not we like what the government is asking us to do. It, we have to keep it simple. Are they asking us to break the Bible or not? Disobey the Word of God or not? So far, no. In fact... In Ontario, the church has had a privileged position within society among all of the institutions. We've been granted greater freedoms than any other institution for public gatherings. That is not persecution. It's inconvenient. It's not what we want. But it's not persecution. Statement number nine, which gets to this point. God calls his church to gather regularly in order to worship and to encourage one another toward love and good works. 
Yeah, we, we, we see that in Scripture. It's really important that we gather together as the best we can based on the circumstances around us that, and, and to do everything that we can to be creative uh, within the, the directives of Scripture to gather together to worship God and to build one another up in the faith. We see that in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, when they were gathered. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 is the knockout punch on this point. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So as I said already, if you've been staying away because you're being extra cautious, we would encourage you to consider coming back. We've made it safe. Um, we understand if, if your conscience will not permit it, we understand that. If you're staying away from the gathering of the church, or maybe you know someone who is, uh, not because you're worried about uh, COVID-19 at all, but you just don't like the regulations put in place, I would just uh, exhort you right now that as far as I can see, you're breaking the clear command to submit to governing authorities, to submit to elders, and to gather. So come back to church. These are the nine things that we feel we can bind your conscience to. There are some other things that are not clear that have to do with gathering together. Three statements. And these are really important because it impacts what church looks like and what church feels like and what we do when we're at church. Number one, statement number one, it is not prescribed how often the church must gather for it to be considered regular. There's a lot of things in the Bible um, that are described for us. We, we, we read about what the church did when it did gather. But there's no verse that we could find as elders that says, when the, or, this is how often the church needs to gather. Sorry, let me stay on point here. There's a lot of places in the Bible that talk about how often the, the church was gathering, but nowhere where it says the church must gather on this day in this frequency pattern. So in Acts 2.46, we're told that the church was gathering day by day. In the early days of the church, they were gathering day by day, perhaps because they thought Jesus was going to return in a number of months. So they're like, well, we can put our lives on pause. Let's just gather every day. Um, in Acts 27, 20 verse 7, they were gathering on the first day of the week, which is what we do, right, on Sundays, the first day of the week. Why? Because Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. In 1 Corinthians 16, 2, they gathered on the first day of every week. The Corinthian church did. And then in Revelation 1, 10, we have a reference. Uh, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, probably a reference to the day that the church gathered together on the Sunday to remember the resurrection of Jesus. Now these four uh, citations are the only places that I'm aware of, and now I might have missed one or two, or you could tell me about that, but these are the only places that we're aware of where the, the gathering of the church is spoken about in Scripture. So we have very little to go on. All we know is day by day, first day of the week, Lord's Day. But nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to meet on this day this amount of times per year. Uh, statement number two, it is not prescribed what the church must do when we gather. 
We do get the description of what the church did, but it's nowhere said you must do this. So let me read through uh, several. Uh, well, we do have Acts 2, 42 to 47. We have Acts 27. We have 1 Corinthians 14, 26 to 40, and Colossians 3, 12 to 17. Those are four passages that described what the church did when it gathered. In Acts 2, 42, what was it that the church was doing? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. As you know, we structure our whole, our whole church curriculum around these things. In Acts 27, what were the, was the church doing when it was gathered? When we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. Two things, communion the Lord's table and preaching. Those are good things to do. What was the church doing when it gathered together in 1 Corinthians 14? Paul writes to them, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. Earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. <laughs> I mean, we could camp out here forever and but the point I want to make is there's a lot of those things that we never do anymore. So obviously it's not a prescriptive passage. It's descriptive of the Corinthian church. And it's not an exhaustive list. When you come together, somebody wants to sing a hymn. Somebody has a lesson they want to teach. Somebody has had a revelation from God that week. Someone wants to talk in a tongue. Somebody wants to interpret that tongue. Paul says, well, whatever you're doing, you got to do it in order. You got to do it decently. Somebody has to control the, ser the order of service. And that's really the important part. All things should be done decently in order, whatever it is that you do. And then finally, the Colossians. Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now it's not clear that this is a gathering of the church, but I think it's, it, it at least can inform in a descriptive sense some of the things that we could do when we gather together. Let the word of Christ dwell in your house through the preaching and the reading of his word. Uh, teach one another, admonish one another, sing together. Be thankful in your hearts. But then verse 17, again, whatever it is that you do, probably when you gather together, whatever, whatever it is, it's on the order of service. Whether it's in word or deed, something that you're speaking or your conversations with one another, or actions, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we have freedom to do these things and other things, but we don't know how frequently we have to do each of them. Third statement, it is not prescribed what form the church is permitted to take when gathered. Uh, we, uh, never says in Scripture, when you gather the church, every member must be present every week. Otherwise, we would be in violation of that every week. We don't have perfect attendance. 
So we don't all have to be together every week in one room for it to be deemed quote-unquote church. Um, the location, we don't have to be in this room. We could, we could be in someone's house. Well, we can't all fit in one house. Well, it says, nowhere in Scripture does it say that we can't break into subgroups. That the church, social Bible church, is meeting across the city in a variety of homes. I, I see nowhere in Scripture where that's prohibited. It's not prescribed, but it's not prohibited. Uh, nowhere in Scripture does it talk about the use of technology. Can we be in different houses and join together doing one order of service through the use of technology? I see nowhere in Scripture where it says that that's not a valid meeting of the church. So why do we talk about these things that are not prescribed? For the simple reason is, um, with government regulation comes the need for us to pivot. We need to change what we're doing and how we're doing it and how frequently we're doing it and where we're doing it and with whom we're doing it. And we have to make use of this room and our houses and outside space and technology in order to keep this church together. And we're going we're gonna to use all of those th resources and all of those opportunities and all of those possibilities. And our goal is to keep the church together. And togetherness is not restricted to bodies in a room singing. Yes, we haven't been able to sing inside, and that, that's probably going to be the case for a long time. Does that mean that it's not worth your time to come to the gathering of the church? I would say, no, like, look at what we are doing. We're praying together. We're visiting with one another out in the parking lot. We get to see one another. Uh, we get to um, say, have one of us represent us in song. We get to mull over the words uh, of the songs that are being sung. You get the preaching of the word and the reading of the word. We're doing a lot of things that the Bible says we ought to do when we gather together. So it's worth our time to gather together. Don't say, well, you're not singing inside, therefore it's not worth my time to come. I'm staying home because I can sing at home. Like, sing on the way to church, sing on the way home from church, sing at home, meet a group of, of people from the church in the park and sing with them on Sunday afternoon. Um, sing in the parking lot, which we're starting to do. Uh, but no, singing does not need to be a part of the order of service in order for this to be a legitimate gathering of the church. And you could expand singing to all kinds of other things. So this has been a firm, hasn't it? It's been hard. It's been long. Um, uh, we've had a lot to say. I want to take us back to Philippians, though. Remember what this is all about. Euodia and Syntyche were not agreeing on something, and it was causing a division in the church. We have members of our church who don't agree about COVID-19. And we haven't seen any large-scale division yet, but it's beginning to cause the possibility of future division. And so we need to worship together. This is the solution. Worship together and then talk it out reasonably with one another. And when blood pressure gets high and anxiety becomes a reality when you lose the moisture in your mouth and your heart is beating faster and you get hot say hey can we just cool this down slow this down can we pray together and God has promised he'll grant you a measure of peace and if you still can't get on the same page 
open the Bible. And what the elders want you to do is take out this document that we're going to send to you and go over these nine statements. We are appealing to you, the members of this church, to unite under the word of God by affirming these nine statements in faith and in your practice. Let's go over them one last time and then I will close. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you've learned, the Word of God. And what you've received, the Word of God. And what you've heard, the Word of God. And what you've seen in me, the Word of God. Practice these things. And then the God of peace will be with you, will be with us. So what are these things? God is sovereign over all. And he institutes all governing authorities. Think about that. God calls Christians to submit to him by submitting to governing authorities. Think about that. God calls Christians to pray for their leaders. We want you to think about that and do that. Elders of the local church are to exercise oversight with authority, but they are not to be domineering. Pray for us in that. God calls Christians to submit to the elders of the local church. Consider that. God calls Christians to surrender individual rights in love for the sake of others. Think about that and wear a mask, if not for yourself, if not to submit to governing authorities, for those who are being extra cautious and I've just told them that we've made it safe for them to be here. God calls Christians to surrender individual rights in love for the sake of maintaining unity in the bond of peace. The group is more important than the individual. What you feel is not as important as keeping the church united. Think about that. No governing authority, human institution, or council of elders has the authority or the right to require Christians to disobey God. If you have biblical grounds for not submitting to the elders or to the governing authorities, we are not asking you to submit blindly. Fidelity to the word of God is paramount. 
I just want to tell you, I would rather go to jail than break Scripture. Now, I'll sin and so on, but I'm saying as an act of conscience, I would rather be fined heftily or be thrown in jail. And that's the commitment that you have from your elders. We are not interested in breaking Scripture. We're interested in keeping Scripture. Please think about that. God calls his church to gather regularly in order to worship and to encourage one another toward love and good works. Isn't it good to be together? And here's the thing. As we move forward, we are not going to be able to do this as ideally as we want. We are not currently exercising the ideal manifestation of this, but we are doing this. And I would say we have been doing this for six months. We did it as best we could in the three months where we couldn't gather. We've been doing it the best we can now as, since we've been able to meet together. So, so let us all work together and be together as much as we can. The task of the elders is to shepherd our people into one flock by leading you into the shelter of biblical wisdom. And therefore, we, the elders, appeal to you to think about these nine statements of unambiguous biblical truth. And then let us do these things together to the glory of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this church. Thank you for protecting us these six months protecting our unity. Uh, we have not experienced deep division, and I am so thankful for that. I'm also thankful that you have given this church elders, shepherds who see the inkling beginnings, the, the, the seeds, the fault lines, the cracks that could become major division points in our church. And so we are doing the best we can to call everyone into the safety of of this pasture, the shelter of your word. I pray that the members of this church will follow. And God, help the elders as they move forward into more and more uncertainty. Uh, as we and they, especially as I step back in a couple of weeks, as they continue to seek the good of this church so that this church might be built up strong and healthy, cared for and loved all to the glory of Jesus Christ. Finally, Jesus, I do pray, you have given us a commandment that we love one another because when the world sees that we love one another, even when it's not easy, they will see that we're your disciples and so glorify you in heaven. So Jesus, help us to do that very thing. In your name we pray. Amen.